everybody. Welcome back again to a series we're calling Crash Course here at Rosedale Bible College. It's a course in which we're sitting down with various instructors of various courses and talking about how these courses uh, matter, or why these courses matter and how they affect our lives and why we bother to teach them here at Rosedale Bible College. And today we've got a special guest, Matthew Cordella Bontrager, a professor here at Rosedale Bible College, teaches a wide range of classes. Uh, Matt, just in brief, tell us just a little bit about yourself and uh, what we're going to talk about here today. Well, President Miller, (laughs) you introduced me with my full hyphenated monstrosity of a name, which doesn't fit on my credit card uh, <laughs> and which doesn't fit on the nameplate above my office and uh, which is too long for me to use when I'm signing emails. And so I sign my emails MCB, which has led many of the students here at Rosedale to call me Mick B. This is true. And, uh, that's just fine. So that's that's the name. What's in a name? Uh, I've taught here at Rosedale for three years, and uh, it's a I think a pretty interesting story of how I I came to be here. I, I came thinking that I'd only be around for a six week winter term, and now we're going on uh, three years. So we could happily get into that. Uh, Although I'll remember we were interviewing someone for a faculty position, and he asked a wonderful question. How did the Lord call you to Rosedale? And I responded impertinently that I wasn't sure the Lord had called me to Rosedale, but I was pretty sure he wouldn't let me leave. And uh, for his glory, and I'm good. Well, for his glory and my good. And our joy. And our joy. That's right. Well, Matt, tell us a little bit uh, about—we're here to talk— uh, about this course uh, that you're teaching. Uh, you want to say what the course is and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your goals for this particular course. Yeah, well, for for you old-timers out there, this course was formerly known as Bible Doctrines 1, although today we're calling it uh, core Christian Beliefs one, uh, and, and the object here is to uh, introduce Rosedale students uh, to the study of theology, of Christian doctrine, and uh, in particular, to deal with some of the uh, primary topics, the topics that are handled uh, first in most systematic treatments of theology. Now, Jeremy, I've used that word systematic a couple of times, and I'd love if you would ask me what I mean. <laughs> well, uh, maybe it'd be helpful to know what you mean by, but also, uh, like, what are the alternatives? So That's when right. you talk about systematic theology, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's an excellent question. <laughs> With an excellent prompt. Uh, So, uh, if we're talking about different ways of doing theology, what we could call different theological disciplines, uh, we we might want to begin by defining theology in general. 
And in a very general uh, sense, theology is uh, the study of God. And uh, in particular, uh, the church's attempt to pay close attention to our speech about God. And when we're thinking about that question, who is God, and, 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 and then again, how do we, how do we speak about him, uh, there are a number of different disciplines that we want to engage. Uh, first of all, I think as, as a good evangelical Anabaptist, we want to demonstrate uh, our care for the Bible because it is uh, the inspired and inerrant word of God. And so uh, exegesis... Uh, is a theological discipline where we're getting into the text, paying close attention to uh, grammar and diction and the, uh, the, the phenomena of the text. And, and then also biblical theology, right, which is a much beloved discipline. I think it's the place where uh, our Mennonite tradition really likes to camp out, which is to uh, read the big story of Scripture, which finds its center and its its summit in Jesus Christ, and to see how God is unfolding important themes across the the big story of salvation history. So we get uh, perhaps temple uh, introduced in Genesis, and uh, across that big story of salvation history, we come to Revelation, and we see temple again, but developed and unfolded in a, in a new and exciting way. Uh, we have a sense that we know more, praise God, when we finish reading the Bible than when we began. Right? So biblical theology is, is, is vitally important, and I think it's, it's really uh, the platform uh, for systematic theology. Uh, there's a, a theologian whom I really like, even if I disagree with him on, on some important matters, Michael Bird. And uh, Michael Bird's an Australian. He's an Anglican. And so uh, we, would, we would disagree about things like uh, sex and gender uh, and also the atonement. Uh, but, but Michael Bird has, has style, right? And the interesting thing about Michael Bird is that he's known for his systematic theologies, these these textbooks, but he's trained as a New Testament scholar. And, and Bird has a great line in the intro to his big theology textbook uh, saying that uh, most systematic theologians need to be slapped in the head with a wet fish uh, to slap some exegetical <laughs> sense into them. You shouldn't be doing theology without uh, your Bible firmly in hand. And I think that's uh, you know easy, easy for Bird to say because he's <laughs> a biblical scholar, uh, but but I appreciate also that when he turned to this next discipline that that I'd, I'd like to talk about, the subject of our conversation here today, systematic theology, he says, you know, I, I'm looking across the aisle at people doing systematics and watching them try to force a square peg through a round hole, and and there comes a point when you need to go over and say, here, just let me help you. With that, let me use my, my knowledge of scripture to really help you. But then he found that when he went over uh, to sit with the systematicians who were trying to force these pegs through holes, he found out that uh, their project is actually not as easy as he thought. And the project of systematics, I think, is to reflect upon the whole uh, range of, of God's revelation. So God's special revelation to us in scripture 
Uh, perhaps his special revelation to us in other places, that's an open question. How is God revealing himself? God's general revelation to us in creation to reflect also on the history and conversation of the church uh, as they've engaged big questions and to try to bring all the resources that we have to bear on pressing questions uh, that will occur to people who are taking biblical theology really, really seriously. So, so one of the great examples of a, a, a properly systematic question occurs to people who are, who are reading their Bibles and thinking real hard about God. And the Bible says that God is one, but the Bible also says that the Father is God. And uh, you'd better believe that the Son, incarnate as Jesus Christ, is God. And also, uh, we have good reason, like compelling reason to believe that the Holy Spirit is also God. And so we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God, and we have the, the clear affirmation that God is one. What do we do with this? And so systematic theology, the, the, the tradition of the, of the church and reflecting upon uh, God's revelation uh, has, has made the claim that God is triune, uh, we, we talk sometimes about the doctrine of the Trinity, but that God, there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in, in Core Christian Beliefs 1, we're going to ask, uh, how did the church formulate that claim? Why did the church formulate that claim? And, and how does that claim help us to understand the God who has saved us in Jesus Christ and who speaks to us through his word and spirit uh, even today? So you're saying you study the the concept of the Trinity and how the church came to that understanding in core Christian beliefs one. Uh, I assume there are a whole list of sort of theological questions that you seek to answer in that class. That would be a safe assumption, President <laughs> Miller. Uh, but but I would I would press a little bit. Uh, a little bit further, I would say we're not only trying to understand why the church claims that God is triune, confesses that God is triune, uh, we want to understand why it's important, why it matters, why our understanding of how God loves us and saves us and shows grace is anchored in his eternal nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, how God is, is unlike fallen humanity uh, and why we can trust in him for our salvation. Uh, and so, yeah, we're going to deal with a, a range of topics in core Christian beliefs, but uh, beyond formulating uh, these topics clearly, speaking about them confidently, we want to have a clear sense of how they enhance the witness of the church, how they're, they're important to uh, our, our mission as kingdom workers uh, to bear witness in the whole of life to the God who saves us. In Jesus. So there's a very practical element to, all right, so here, here is, here, here's what we believe, here's how we got there, and here's why this matters. That's right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is the case with all my classes, Jeremy, and I, I think you already know this, but I, I really don't like, as a student and, and as a teacher, to come into a class and say, okay, this is the list of things we're going to learn this semester. Here's your hoop. Now you jump through it or, or you don't want to know, right? It'll be reflected <laughs> in your grade. And I do have a, a clear list of, of, of uh, controversies and questions that we're going to be uh, engaging. We're, we're doing 
in many senses, a, a standard intro to systematics class. But I like to frame it in terms of, of questions, because I think rather than holding up a hoop way above my head and saying, jump through it, right, no one has motivation for that. But a good question, right, is going to light a fire under you. And no one's going to have to tell you to jump if you're, you're animated by good questions. So I try to introduce... Uh, all of these topics uh, with questions. And, and I try to unite all of these topics within one big question. Uh, so can you give an example of that? So, so the big question uh, for the class would be, uh, how do I bear truthful witness about God? How do I bear truthful witness about God? I mean, that's what we're, we're Christian workers, we're kingdom workers. That's what we've been sent out into the world to do. And so all of our questions about how do, how do we know about God? How do we know the truth about God? Um, what does God reveal to us? How does God reveal himself to us? What's the content of that revelation? What is God like? Uh, these, are, these are powerful and important questions. And then in, in Core Christian Beliefs 1, we move on to questions about how, how, does, how does the God who has come to us uh, in word and spirit relate in an ongoing way to his creation. Why is there uh, evil in the world? Why do we suffer? What, what is God going to do about it? And how does God relate himself to, to uh, the condition of, of a fallen creation and sinful humanity? Uh, and it sets us up for the, the next course in the sequence, which uh, we're teaching over winter term on Christology, right? God's climactic answer uh, to fallen creation, Jesus Christ. So Matt, uh, I, I'd be curious to know, like, why, why this matters fundamentally. I know this is jumping ahead in the conversation in some degree, but to some degree, but uh, you know, these are these are big topics yeah. that many Christians would say, man, why do we why do we have to spend time thinking about that? Why can't we just go out and serve the poor? Or why, why can't we just go uh, sing a worship song in, in, to, to God? Why can't we just go pray? And all, all of those things we can just go do. <laughs> but why is it helpful for believers to consider carefully the subject matter that you've uh, laid out in this classroom? I think that's a wonderful question, Jeremy. Uh, I think you can and, and we often do just go out and witness to people and and pray and worship the issue is is well it's not really it's arguably an issue <laughs> you're already doing theology when you do those things and so this is where we we want to press for a more rigorous definition of theology we open the conversation by saying broadly theology is is the study of of god and and also attention to our speech about, about God. But, you know, it, it strikes me that many of the objections to academic theology are themselves theological objections. And so I know that, that um, I, I live and witness in a context where sometimes, uh, for some people, the value of systematic theology is not entirely, entirely clear. And so I wrote this little blurb. And actually, I, I was 
kind of excited about it when I wrote it. I remember busting into your office at like 6.30 in the morning to <laughs> shout it at you. Uh, but I'd like to shout it at our listeners if that's okay. That's fine. I, I was not prepared for this, but I will brace myself here. Well, so this comes in the context of a, of a, a resource that I'm, I'm developing. I think systematic theology, right? We, we look to articulate timeless truths, eternal truths about God and his nature, uh, as well as, as timely truths about how God has intervened for uh, his glory and our good in, uh, in, in creation. But theology is also contextual, right? We're, we're articulating these unchanging truths about God, but we're we're emphasizing them or communicating them in ways that are going to hopefully land for the people uh, with whom we cooperate and witness and also the people to whom we aim to go out and bear witness. Uh, and so I'm creating this resource for our people. Uh, and, and this is how I, I opened the first chapter. The heading is another ology for some people, including many Christians, the word theology produces a violent, retching reaction. In others, it produces a distaste that, although more physically subdued, is nevertheless consequential. If they do not gag at the very mention of theology, they will at least turn up their noses as theology passes them by. Some Christians hold colleges and universities in, in suspicion, and perhaps justifiably so. They recognize that academic theologians tend to remake the sovereign Lord in their own image. They recognize that such theology is nothing less than idolatry. And who could support idolatry, President Miller? Surely enough, faithful Christians cannot. Even in those precious moments when theologians manage to avoid plagiarizing the mirror, copying their own image, theology, like so many ologies, can be needlessly dry and therefore unpalatable. God is the source of all light and life. He is light and life, capital L. If the Spirit of God dwells in a Christian, what more theology could she possibly need? God sends tongues of fire to rest on the scalps of his apostles, strikes dead those who lie to his spirit, crosses boundaries all over the world to call people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into worship around his throne. Why would anybody associate him with something as dead and barren as a systematic theology textbook? Theology, perhaps, fosters a pharisaical religious spirit, but the gospel creates a living relationship with the living God. Theology fosters controversy and disunity, but the Holy Spirit creates unity. Jesus Christ is not an academic. Why should I be? And this leads naturally enough to a whole host of practical objections. The precious time that theologians squander in intellectual hair-splitting would be better spent evangelizing the lost, ministering to the needy, or learning to play reckless love on the electric guitar. Theologians are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. To be a daydreamer would be harmless enough, but theologians actually harm the witness of the church by distracting us from practical 
ministries. Define theologian, and I'll add that this definition comes from the late Emily Jean Bender, the first person to encourage me uh, to pursue formal, formal theological education. Define theologian. He's a man with two feet planted firmly in the clouds, shy of public and unrepentant incest. Nearly anything would be better for the church than theology. We need more theology like most people need another hole in the head. And so this resource has been designed primarily for people who harbor such reservations. I mean, I've heard it, Jeremy. (laughs) I've heard it. And I take the objection seriously, uh, in part because I think they're, they're legitimate critiques a lot of the time. Legitimate critiques. Yet, I'm still teaching this class. And we still run a Bible college. And we still run a Bible college. So here's, <laughs> here's your plug for that we have a reason to exist. You know, why do we, why do, we do theology? Well, speaking to, to practical people, uh, such as those who would make the objections I just named, uh, we, do, we do theology because it's a practical necessity. If you're going to be talking with people about God and about what he's done for you and what he's going to do for them, well, you need to be sure that you're telling the truth, that you're communicating ways that, that accurately represent God and Jesus Christ to the people uh, around you. You need to make sure that you understand God correctly. You know, if theology is our speech about God, it strikes me that, that songs and, and witness and ministry often, often include speech. So, so it seems to me that the, the question is not whether we'll do theology. The question is whether we'll do theology intentionally, thoughtfully, and well. But that's not all, right? I, I kind of want to push beyond the practical uh, Objection. Certainly, Emily Jean Bender's critique of theology uh, focuses on its impracticality, right? You're a man with two feet planted firmly in the clouds. I, I do theology, and I, I want Rosedale students to do theology uh, because I love God, because I'm, I'm grateful to the, the God who saved me. I think uh, A.W. Tozer great saint, has a nice quote that, that uh, most people make the mistake of thinking uh, that when they found God, they need no longer seek him. And, and if, you, if you really know God, if you know this, this gracious and, and loving God who, who's so kind to his enemies, kind enough to, to send his only begotten son into the world to, to die at our hands on a cross in atonement for sin, you, you can't do other than, than love that God and, and want to know him more, right? And, and that's exactly what Jesus commands us to do, right? You were supposed to uh, love, love our God. He expands on the Shema with, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's clear that we're supposed to give our, our entire selves to God in love as, as, re- as response to what God has done for us in in Jesus. And so if we're, as William Lane Craig says, idling and intellectual neutral, we're neglecting an important part of the greatest commandment. And we're, we're not loving God as, as God really deserves to be loved, right? Which, which includes always uh, 
our minds, no less than our hearts. So Matt, how do you avoid the pitfalls of the critiques that you outlined in this opening chapter of your, of your resource that you're writing? Well, it, it remains to be seen if I have. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm trying, Jeremy. I, I really am. I, I think probably the best way forward is to keep the gospel first, last, and central throughout. <laughs> so um, systematic theology, again, we've said, uh, answers these, these questions that arise from reflection upon Scripture. And we gave the, the doctrine of the Trinity as one example of a properly systematic kind of question. And in general, systematic theologies organize those questions in a fairly predictable way. And, and, and it's typical for a systematic theology textbook to begin with a section on theological method, or sometimes the really highfalutin people will call it a prolegomena, right? That, that which you say beforehand, before you get down to theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. Right? God, is, God is the first thing we want to deal with in theology, apart from, apart from method, <laughs> right? Uh, and and I, I want to make the case um, that method actually should be first, that it's not blasphemous to put method first, and that the gospel is actually going to be the, the platform uh, for our practice of theology, that the gospel is central to the very method of, a, of, of our systematic enterprise. So, uh, uh, I think it was Sean, uh, Sean Eicher's son, Caleb Eicher, that, that got caught in the crosshairs of this question. Right? He's a student here. He's a student here, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. And Sean is a, a CMC pastor and a friend. Yeah. And uh, I, would, I would, after this conversation, also count Caleb as a friend, too. So I asked uh, Caleb, what, you know, if he had to study one animal uh, named by Adam on the face of God's good earth, what, which animal would he like to study? And he said, monkeys. He'd like to study monkeys. Uh, in, in the moment, I couldn't remember the, the word primatologist, which is the, primatology is the study of monkeys. It's one of those ologies, right? So I, I just, I, I dubbed uh, Caleb a monkeyologist, right? It's a monkeyologist wants to go study monkeys. And, uh, and I had the, uh, the whole class give Brother Caleb uh, a bunch of unsolicited advice <laughs> about how he should go about his study, right? And um, the, the advice was really interesting. Some students said, uh, Caleb, you know, those monkeys, they live up in the canopies of the trees, and, and uh, you can't really see them so well, so I think, I think you should bring some binoculars with you on your study. And, you know, the monkeys live in a jungle and you're susceptible to malaria. And so you should go to the doctor and get a bunch of shots before you go so that you don't get sick and die in the jungle before you can complete your study. And also Caleb, I know monkeys uh, like bananas. And so rather than climbing the tree or looking through binoculars, maybe you want to bring a big sack of bananas with you into the jungle and see if you can lure the monkeys down and, and interact with them. Uh, so that you can study them. Of course, you'll bring a notebook so you can record your findings, maybe a camera to, to catalog new kinds of monkeys. And then we took a step back, right? And, and we thought a little bit about 
what kinds of considerations shaped the advice that the class gave to Brother Caleb? Why are they telling him to do these things as he sets out to study the monkeys? Why does monkeyology have this particular method involving binoculars and sacks of bananas and anti-malarial medication? Well, uh, I think it's the case that the method of, of any discipline, the method of any discipline at all, is going to be determined to a pretty significant extent, extent but by the object of its study, in this case, monkeys, and the subject of the study, that is the person doing the studying. So Caleb's susceptibility to jungle illnesses and also the, the distinctive character of monkeys shape the way that he's going to venture into the thicket, right, to try and learn something about him. And with respect to this relationship between subject and object and method, I think theology is a discipline much, much like any other. So theology, again, we said broadly is the discipline where humans study God. And therefore, the relationship between humanity and God and the character of humanity and the character of God have to determine theological method. And if theology is like every other discipline with respect to the considerations that go into its, its method, subject and object then it's also going to be distinct from all other disciplines with respect to its awesome object, God himself, the living God, our creator and redeemer. So the object of theological study is the only true God and in and, and, and sovereign freedom through his word and spirit, the only true God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And his creation reflects his praiseworthy attributes among them, his perfect goodness, his, uh, his reason, his orderliness, and his, his life, his eternal and unquenchable life. God creates humanity as his image, gives, them, uh, gives humanity, gives us a place of, of royal honor among his creatures, uh, commissions, commissions humanity as his special representatives in a creation that already reflects his attributes Yet humanity is somehow more like the rest of that creation, or like God than the rest of that creation. And yet humanity freely, ungratefully, and culpably rebels against this gracious God, choosing instead evil, disorder, and death. And by this choice, humanity has blasphemously misrepresented the only true God, betrayed him, and the purpose for which he created us. And through rebellion and faithlessness, humanity has introduced this element of evil, disorder, and death into God's good creation. So, Matt, just to break in a little bit, um, so to kind of create a bit of an equation, uh, if you're studying monkeys, you use bananas because you know something about monkeys, even if you don't know much. That's right. When you're studying God... Mm -hmm. Uh, there's an awareness of who we are before him, even mm. if you don't know much about God. That's right. That comes to bear on how we study God. I, I think that's right, Jeremy. And, and I think this is one of the things that distinguishes theology from related and often confused disciplines like religious studies, right? So, so religious studies is this uh, quasi-scientific approach to religion where we presume an attitude of neutrality and, and simply try to 
observe mm-hmm. religion scientifically and, mm-hmm. and draw uh, neutral conclusions about them. Similarly, we have apologetics, right, which intends uh, the unbeliever as its primary audience, right? Uh, theology is different from religious studies and from apologetics because theology takes Christian faith as its starting point and as its ending point. Yeah. Right? So we have this platform um, that is Christian faith. And, and, and so theology, in some sense, is an in-house discussion. It's, it's a discipline of the church um, that, that takes the, a particular God uh, as, as its object and, and comes to the table, comes to the conversation with an already existing set of convictions about his character and our situation before him. And it's our situation before yeah. him that I really want to get at here because the subject of theology, fallen humanity, flees from the object of theology. The, so, so we run in guilt and shame from our gracious creator away from life and into death. Fallen humanity chooses deceit, right? Instead of repentance and faith, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We trade away the glory of the truth for a lie in our fallen state. We're radically corrupt. We've come to prefer evil disorder and death over against God's perfect goodness, reason and life, even over against God himself. Fallen humanity no longer lives as God's ruler representatives in a flourishing creation teeming with life according to his good design. But instead, we're ruled. We're ruled by our own perverse love of darkness. We love the sin that dominates us. We love darkness rather than light. And we've become beastly by turns both predator and prey, dehumanized, dehumanizing. And our sin-distorted lives continue to represent God. We're still the image of God after the fall, but as an offensive caricature would represent the object of caricature. We live blasphemously. So if we're going to do theological method, right? If we're going to reckon with uh, the relationship between the subject and object of theology, then fallen humanity needs to reckon with the vast gulf between the only true God and the great multitude of false and fallen humanity. And we find ourselves unable to bridge the gulf. Our, Our attempts to do so are futile. They're offenses against the only true God. Think of Babel confirming only that we're rightly subject to his wrath. And, and, and yet even this confirmatory experience of sin's futility is lost on us, right? We're that corrupt. We persist in rebellion and unbelief. Sin has darkened our hearts and minds. and We don't countenance our own inability to save ourselves. But there's good news. Although we're unfaithful, we're untrustworthy, God is unswerving in his faithfulness, even to people who have betrayed him. And whereas humanity is, is hateful in spite of God's love and grace, God loves even those who would hatefully crucify him and, and who actually do when given the opportunity. Whereas humanity invests its hope in the vain imaginations of our sin sin-darkened hearts. God speaks himself forward in these last days as, as true hope for those who are in truth completely hopeless. And the only true God who spoke in the beginning yet continues to speak to his fallen creation. He speaks 
of his wrathful and just judgment upon sin, confirming his holy character. And, and yet, in, in that same sovereign and freedom and grace with which he created in the beginning, God promises salvation for faithless, hateful, hopeless humanity. And God fulfills these promises of judgment and salvation in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the condition of theological study. The gospel uh, is, is the condition for all of our true speech, all our true witness about, about God. It's also the content of our theology. It, it, it is, is good news of this God who has acted to save us. Uh, it's the good news that, that we herald that Jesus Christ, the crucified and glorified man, is, is Savior and Lord. It's fantastic to me. And, and I think, like, if that doesn't put, put your fears to rest, you practical-minded people out there, I, I think that this also suggests a theology, right, Jeremy? So maybe you would, you would answer this question. I'll flip it on you. Like, <laughs> if the gospel, right, is our, our, uh, the, the, the platform for our theology, it's the, the condition of our, our practice of theology, it, it determines our theological method, how do we go about theology? In what spirit do we go about theology? Well, as you were talking, I was just thinking about the fact that um, it really is only after we are uh, in the gospel story, we've mm. been reconciled to God, that we have any hope of really understanding the true God. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, it, it would seem that living, living in that story, understanding that, uh, understanding that we're saved by grace through faith, <laughs> uh, that posture toward God, of of submission, of um, of humble obedience and uh, complete allegiance to yes. the King that saves, is the only way at moving forward well in understanding who he is and who we really are in light of that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I would, I would even like press really hard here on the act by which we are saved, right? Like that climactic, right. the cross, right. right? So it's where we're, so Jesus is the truth, right? Jesus right. is the, the way, the truth and the life after all. Jesus is the truth incarnate and the truth has come to us. The truth is working miracles. Blind eyes are seeing, deaf ears are hearing, people are being raised from the dead. And yet humanity abandons, even the disciples abandon Jesus at the cross and, and, uh, you know, whether Jew or Gentile, we conspire to crucify the truth. And that's where our, our atonement is accomplished. But, you know, I'm also teaching first Corinthians right now. And, and I linger over Paul's method there in chapters one and two. I think it's the case that it doesn't matter whether you're um, a Jew or a Gentile. We all, because of our fallen condition, we, we reject the cross. We reject a crucified Messiah. We reject that, that, that like this place of, of total shame and seeming defeat is where uh, sin is finally dealt with and victory is, is accomplished. 
we look at the cross and 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 maybe we despise uh, foolishness or it's weakness. Foolish, that's right. Yeah, but and and you know we will look upon <laughs> Christ with with contempt or maybe pity, but never as our Lord and Savior. And Paul says that it's only through the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in us that the message of the cross is unveiled to our sin-dimmed eyes, visible now as the wisdom of God and the power of God for our salvation. And so it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, that we have the mind of Christ. And we begin to understand God as Jesus himself does, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus himself is a person of God come to us in the flesh. We see creation and humanity as Jesus does. We approach human life and and community as Jesus does. And we begin to believe in that glorious future that Jesus promised to us and that he uncovered for us in his own resurrection flesh. It's amazing. Yeah, Matt, it's really interesting, though, because a lot of believers still struggle with seeing Jesus as uh, God's intended example for his people. Mm. You know, uh, there's the argument that that Jesus had a, had a mission to do apart from sort of being an example, apart from the cross serving as our yeah. our center point not just uh for our the the salvation of our soul eternally mm-hmm. but for, for the life. transformation of our lives today yeah. um the cross still seems really foolish to a lot of believers <laughs> for this time in this place for us yeah. it can't possibly be an example right. is what it was what was said well so this is what i think the beautiful thing about about God <laughs> and about how God revealed himself particularly through his apostle Paul to the Corinthians. The, the same Holy Spirit who brings us to faith in Jesus Christ, who enables us to call that crucified man Lord and Savior, is the Spirit who lives in us as his temple. And that spirit living in us through whose work alone we can really begin to appreciate the cross as as God's provision for our salvation. Through the work of that spirit, we begin, I think, to become like the God we behold and worship in Jesus Christ. We, We begin to live as the human image of God, as he created us to be. And as Jesus truly and perfectly is, right? And so I, I would say we all struggle with that because yeah. we all struggle with the cross. You know, an older chapter in Rosedale's history, we talk a great deal about our carnality, right? The carnality of our minds. And it's, it's only by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit that we can begin to see things differently, that we can begin to see things as Jesus does. And so I think when when I go into my systematic theology classroom, I come in with a, a attitude of, of total dependency 
right? My, my advisor for my, my uh, doctoral program, Malcolm Yarnell, talks about how Glassenheit, right, this great Anabaptist idea of yieldedness and submission to God, uh, not just inwardly, but in life, right, is the condition of, of theology, right? But isn't—we we wrestled a little bit earlier with, okay, so how do we avoid theology becoming all of these things that mm. aren't helpful? And uh, perhaps part of the, the answer is uh, in understanding the point— of theology, which we're saying is to help us understand the God that we are called to become like. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that's right. And not just because you're signing my checks. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, uh, yeah, if if the gospel, if, if the good news of Jesus Christ is the condition of our theology and is going to determine our method, I think, I think it also... Um, there's also this spirituality, right, that is uh, built into our practice of theology. Uh, theology has to be doxology, right? It has to be explain glory. That, explain those terms. Theology has to be doxology. So the study of God has to be, now explain doxology. Praise God from whom <laughs> all blessings flow, right? Uh, we, doxology is, is, is about worship. It's about the praise of God. And, and rightly understood— Theology, beginning, middle, and end is doxology, right? We're, we're motivated to undertake it because we, we love the God of our salvation, because he loved us first when we were totally unworthy. God loved us when we were yet sinners, right? And we want to give him praise. We want to glorify him. We want to share him with other people. And then the act of doing that, the act of reflecting upon that, the act of preparing for that, that is the practice of theology, is similarly an act of, of worship. And then its end is also worship. Its, its end is, is to build up the praise of the church for the glory of God, to call new people into the praise of God, to help them uh, recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, to understand God truly through him. And I think that that praise, right, leaves the classroom. If this is our spirituality of theology, then we're concerned not just with getting it right in the classroom, but right. also with living That's theologically. Right. Theology finds its expression in the life of the church, this grateful posture toward life uh, and, and whole life obedience, loving obedience, as you said earlier, Jeremy, uh, to, to the God who has come to us as, as Jesus Christ. And so I think this gets us into one of the more technical questions. When we talk about methods, all right, Matt, you know, that's great. You love Jesus and you want other people to love Jesus too, but how are we going to skin this cat? Well, I think this gospel spirituality, which, which um, you know, produces works of love, right? Uh, a living faith produces these, these good works, the uh, works that praise God. Uh, the gospel spirituality gets expressed in this obedience to Jesus, the Messiah. And, 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 you know, if, if we're trying to see the world as Jesus does and see God as Jesus does, if the Holy spirit has given us the mind of Christ, then we want to do theology like Jesus does theology. And so 
generally in your method section of the textbook, you go through the sources and norms of theology. So when we do, when we do, when we do theology, right, we have uh, scripture. Scripture has pride of place. It's the the highest norm. It's it's kind of the the uh, magisterial norm. It's the uh, you could call it the norman normans non normata, right? The the norming norm that is not normed. It's the it's the one through which we we. Uh, ultimately read read the others it has pride of place why right why is the question i didn't i didn't grow up mennonite why is scripture first yeah i don't have i don't have this like um like built-in piety the holy spirit has had to lead me in it my my uh you know dutch uncle didn't and and so so i want to make the case in this method chapter that that our understanding of scripture as as fully inspired, even in the choice of words, down to the jots and tittles, uh, that, that, that that view of Scripture is, is anchored in how Jesus read Scripture, right? And that our, our view of debate over the meaning of Scripture is, is anchored somehow in how Jesus approached the, debate, the debates uh, of his time, right? That our, our view of uh, experience and how experience and how the life of the Spirit in us um, contributes to theology is anchored in how Jesus uh, lived life in the Spirit and how the apostles uh, lived life in the Spirit. I, I think that's, that's very, very important, right? And so the gospel is the foundation the gospel supplies us with a particular spirituality, which ensures that theology can can never be the dead letter, but is is always rightly understood as doxology through and through. And then also suggests, in a practical sense, right, what we're going to do here. We're going to follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit into a deeper and fuller knowledge of this gracious God who has saved us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when it's pursued from that end, it's it's built on the gospel. It's it's studied through the lens of God's revelation and through Scripture. And its intent is, how do we worship God more fully, with our lives, with our affections, every, everything about us, our, every every part of us is worshiping God more fully. Uh, perhaps that answers or begins to answer the question of how we avoid uh, this trap of of studying theology in such a way that it's uh, it becomes idolatry. It's a dead sort of taking us down roads uh, that suck the life out of our soul and our witness. Um, so I love the picture you're painting. Thanks. I appreciate that. I, you know, I feel like we might be winding down here. And, and, and we the, are. One of the things that, <laughs> well, I've got two minutes on my clock. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I like to do, because, uh, you know, I am a carnal and partisan man. <laughs> I'm still living in the worship wars, Jeremy. You know how much I love a good hymn. And so I often try to weave, weave hymns into my, into my lessons. I try to close each chapter with a... Him and just to be clear, uh, Matt, how old are you? I am thirty on the nose. Okay, you're thirty. Uh, go ahead now. An old soul. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I love him. Uh, and and I I close um, my introduction to this resource with uh with 
uh, Open the Wells of Salvation by Alicia Hoffman. You know this one, Lord, mm-hmm. I am fondly, earnestly longing. And it's true. I, I, I just like to read out, I'm not going to sing the whole thing, uh, praise God, but, but <laughs> I want to read out these words because I, I think this is maybe the, the song of praise, the act of doxology that is on my lips when, hmm. when I'm preparing my lessons and when I walk into the classroom. Hmm. Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing into thy holy likeness to grow, thirsting for more and deeper communion, yearning thy love more fully to know. Open the wells of grace and salvation, pour the rich streams deep into my heart, cleanse and refine my thought and affection, seal me and make me pure as thou art. Dead to the world would I be, O Father, dead unto sin, alive unto thee. Crucify all the earthly within me, emptied of sin and self may I be. So that's the, uh, we've got the motivation in the beginning. We're fondly, earnestly longing. And then the process, sometimes arduous of following Jesus in the way of the cross, crucifying the earthly. And then finally, uh, the conclusion of the story and also the, the last topic in most systematic textbooks. I would be thine and serve thee forever. Forever. Filled with thy spirit, lost in thy love. So come to my heart, Lord. Come with anointing. Showers of grace send down from above. That's, that's my wish for our students. That's my wish for the church. And that's the song that I'm singing as I, as I leave this, uh, this meeting. Matt, I'm grateful uh, that God has you preparing another generation of people who are actively pursuing him with their whole minds. Uh, It's no doubt that you take them deep, uh, but you don't leave them there. The point is to bring them into fuller worship of the king we serve uh, for a lifetime. And so thanks for sharing that with us. I hope you as listeners have enjoyed this conversation with Matt Cordell Bontrager and his class, uh, Core Christian Beliefs. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you on another episode. <laughs>